Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and explore strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of introducing John K. Murphy, affectionately known as Murph. With a career dedicated to helping private business owners achieve their growth stories, Murph's expertise in consulting and advisory roles has made a significant impact. After two decades as an investment banker, he founded JKMA in 2004, embodying the philosophy of thinking like a buyer rather than an owner. Murph's hands-on and patient approach has earned him this reputation of being a trustworthy partner, assisting clients in reaching their strategic goals in areas such as growth, liquidity, succession, market value, risk tolerance, and shareholder transition. Stay tuned to gain valuable insights and wisdom from our incredible guest, Murph. I'm interested quite a bit in the, the angel investor area, only because I've had a few opportunities myself working with clients. I really like the people. I like their value proposition. I like what they're trying to do. And I can see they need money. And I thought maybe this is the one that I should, you know, do either sweat equity, you know, really help them and get paid, you know, some sweat equity or put in some of my own money. And I have to tell you, I've completely chickened out every single time. And so I'm, I'm really curious how you got started in your career. Like what's your, what's your path, but yeah. also how, you know, is, is the angel investing a natural evolution of the, of the M&A consulting sort of practice that you built? Yeah, well, uh, it's a great question and it's, it's a natural evolution. So <clears throat> my career started in investment banking and I spent 20 years helping companies figure out how to, how to raise capital and sell when the time was right. And the way that I could competed as an investment banker is I would ask the owner as I was building a relationship, hey, what are the two or three or four biggest problems you have? And I want to help. And so I became a problem solver in helping them fix whatever it was, management team, business strategy, business model, distribution strategy, et cetera. Growth initiatives. I want to come back to that one because that's an important one. And a lot of these companies were entrepreneurial in nature. So when I went off on my own 19 years ago, starting to invest in those companies became sort of a natural extension for me. You know, I didn't know whether the consulting business was going to work or not. And so I wanted to, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I wanted to try to get some stable cash flow. Right. It doesn't and, sound crazy at all. And a lot of people, when they have that objective, turn to real estate, especially here in Southern California, where there's, you know, real estate galore, especially commercial real estate. And, but I didn't know real estate. I really don't, you know, I have friends that are in real estate, but what I knew is companies, right? you know? And so I felt like that's where I stick to my knitting is I'll, I'll invest and then consult with companies of all different shapes and sizes rather than invest in real estate. And it's turned out okay. I mean, I wish I had more real estate, you know, as, as an aside here 19 years later, but I've really had a lot of fun and have enjoyed the hell out of it. So. Is there a, an industry vertical that you try to stay within or a few of them, or do you, or maybe the other question is, are there any industries that you stay away from? We, we, we're industry agnostic, Joel. We, we, we say that the rules of value that we work under apply across industries, which is true. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would go after a life sciences business just because I feel like right. there might be enough industry knowledge that's, that's needed there, but we've worked 
you know, and here in Southern California, where the topography is full of just all different shapes and sizes of industries, mm. would have been hard to focus anyway. So no, we don't we don't have a we don't have an industry of choice. We the rules of the, the rules of value, as I said, that we follow and that we look to analyze our businesses and see how well they're doing and how we can improve those aspects. They apply across a lot of industries. I now see. we have concentrations. You know, I've worked on three e-commerce companies and prepared them for sale. Mm -hmm. I've worked on a couple of healthcare companies, worked on lots of consumer-facing businesses and industrial companies as an investment banker and here today. But we're not experts in any of our field. In fact, you know, we we say, you know, if you want to go to industry expert, great. But industry experts tend to have sort of a preconceived idea of how to be successful. And we sort of let what we find in the company push us towards the right direction rather than sort of coming in with any preconceived ideas. So. so I'm going to push you back a little bit of that because I, I believe you're right to a certain point. However, industry, vertical ex, vertical industry experts will know because of comparison where your numbers are askew. They'll know what the, they'll know what the key KPIs are with a bit, a little bit better clarity. They'll typically identify um, low hanging fruit that, that, that you and I may not catch because we're not experts in that industry. So yeah. we can get performance benchmarking information though. So if that's, right. you know, so that's, you know, by hook or by crook, there's ways to get that. Right. And, but you're right. Barry Kurtz is known as the franchise attorney. And sure. he, he, his knowledge of the space helps him build his business and has helped him build his business into a terrific, he's one of the most highly regarded franchise attorneys there are. So clearly that works. But what, when, when we're looking at a company to say, how can we change this company to make it more valuable? Right. The things that we look at tend to be the same for every company that we look at. I see. And by the way, your philosophy of you want to, you run your, you think of your, the business, the buyer rather than the company owner. Yeah. I think it makes perfect sense. I've been telling people for years that, that when you start running your business, when you start preparing your business to sell, that's when you make the most amount of money. Then all of a sudden you're focusing on the right things in your business. So you should always be running your business like you're going to sell it. You'll, you'll always, you'll have, you'll, you'll accelerate your growth so much better just by thinking of it that way. I've never put it words like the way you put it. I think you put it very well. And I'm going to probably, you know, sorry, most of my good ideas are stolen. I'm going to have to steal a little bit of them. But, but that, I think you really hit the nail on the head the way you say it. Yeah. Well, it made sense to me because I spent, right. You know, a lot of time listening to buyers ask questions and kind of understanding how they approach things. And what I mean by that is that we have an unemotional perspective as we look at a company, mm -hmm. whereas uh, most owners have a have a emotional that 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 sure. it's hard for them to get out of their own way. I mean, you see it all the time, probably as as yeah. we as, you know, it's it's hard to see around the next tree. Right. I I see. You know, I see a lot of owners saying that they really want their staff and their teams to embrace the change that we're recommending. And then you, then, then you hold them accountable to make, to, you know, to orchestrating those changes. And they're the ones that drop the balls there. You almost want them out of it because they don't want change. They just want their business to be better. And then yeah. when else, I, I'm sure you've seen the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had one client where the, the, the can't see around the next tree was as small as I said to this owner, you know, everybody calls you Mr. Let's say Smith. And he's like, what? And I said, yeah, everybody calls you Mr. Smith. You're a young man. You're 45 years old. It's a young company. Most of the people are younger than you. And I've been in the business world at that time for, say, 30 years. 
And I said, I've only heard it one other time in my life where people in the company referred to the owner, founder as Mr. And it was J.B. Hunt, Mr. Hunt, who started J.B. Hunt Trucking Company. I, if I recall correctly, he barely finished high school or grade school and started this billion dollar trucking company and wow. everybody, everybody revered him. And so that's why it was Mr. And I said, you're too young a man to, and by that time he was in his seventies or something like that. I said, you're young. I, and he said, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. And then I said, by the same token, you call everybody in your company staff. And uh, what triggered me is you, you just used that word. And I said, I know why it was a healthcare business and he was, he was uh, a nurse and figured out a better way to do something and started his own business. And I said, when you were a nurse, you were staff and management was management. Now you're owner and management and everybody's staff. I said, if I was in your company, I'd want to be on the team. I don't want to be staff. So from that day forward, he was Mike and it was team. Yeah. You know, it's just a small thing, but I think that that really helped build a, a better culture for the company because sure. it was more inclusive on the one hand and just more, he didn't hear that people were calling him Mr., which I just, you know, that's the way it was. It's so interesting that he didn't notice it. No, I know. Yeah. I had a, I had another owner, you know, because one of the things we do is we interview the management team and I had another client that say, you know, when you come in or you leave from, at night, you always say goodbye or hello to certain people, we found out. And I said, the people that you don't say hello or goodbye to don't like that. And so what I suggest is, again, it's a tiny little thing. Just say hello to everybody. Don't use anybody's name. Right. And he said, I don't hear myself saying that. I, I have no idea that, because, you know, it's like you get in a routine and it's, sure. it's like it does, it's second nature. And all of a sudden you're in the forest and you can't see around the next tree. Right. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really interesting. As you said, one, one of my, one of my business heroes young in my career was a gentleman named Phil Leslie, who was a founder of Leslie's Pools. Leslie Pools. And, and if you ever knew him, he was a laser focused guy. He rarely smiled. He, I, I just always envisioned him walking around with a printout and green bar paper running through the, you know, he had an open space, you know, his offices were just cubicles that were open, but he knew everybody's names. He knew everybody's spouse and kids. And if someone had a sick relative, he'd stop and say, how's, you know, how's Dorothy doing? And, and he had a incredible loyalty built, but he was laser focused. He was not a friendly, gregarious, you know, effusive man. He was, you know, all business, but he, he knew it was in his instinct, I guess. And it was probably genuine to take the time when something was important to really acknowledge the person. And I always thought it was brilliant. How did you get connected with, with Phil Leslie? Excuse me? How did you get connected with Phil Leslie? He, they were a client of mine early. It was an early large client of mine when I was in the office automation business. They were located close to where we were located. And I think I, awesome. I think I cold called him and he was, and, and once I got to know him and he knew that I really admired him, that he would take the time and, and tell me <laughs> what he was thinking and how he did. I mean, the, I think he's, if I recall, he started with a, $500 investment in a rented house. And he used to take the door off the hinges every day and make that his front counter. I mean, yeah. it was very, you know, very campy where he started. And he was, he was, he was a brilliant, brilliant businessman. I think he uh, passed away about a year ago or so. A, a great business partner of theirs was a company called Hasa, which makes the bleach for pools. Right. Naturally they sold. 
And I worked with Hassa for a number of years and they spoke very reverently about Phil Leslie and the company Leslie's. Mm-hmm. That Leslie's ended up going through a number of buyouts. Yes. Um, um, I haven't kept track of it, of course, but what was interesting to me in learning about the pool business is there's this, there's Leslie's and then there's a bunch of other sort of fragmented retailers that you and I never go see, but all the pool men do because that's where they buy all their stuff, including sure. they have to buy the most often because they use it, they, they use it up so much. But yeah, he, he was quite, he cast quite a wide shadow across the pool industry. He did. He, as far as I know, he invented the, the cover, the, the looks like little pillow tops that cover the, the, keep the pool warm. And he invented a technology that used the, the heat off of an air conditioning unit, captured that heat to heat the pool. And if, oh, no. and if I remember right, one of the leading pool heater companies bought the technology from him and buried oh. it, buried it because it would have made their product obsolete. It was much, it was, oh, it was oh. a low tech solution yeah. to heating your pool. And I, I remember him telling the story. I, I'm sure my, I don't have the facts right. I wouldn't use the name of that company just for that reason. But he was, he was a pretty brilliant innovator. Right? And he was the type of guy I could stop in. The first time I went to Hong Kong, I, I went there to, as, as on a buying trip, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I stopped in his office and said, I'm going there. I don't really have a plan. What do you suggest? And he sat there with me and very methodically helped me, you know, write up, write up, write basically a, a, the plan for, plan of action to get the best pricing. And he was great. He was great. Yeah. And the pool, the San Fernando Valley is the best pool market in the country. And yeah, Leslie's Texas, Florida after that, but San Fernando Valley, it's that's Mm -hmm. because the heat, the heat in the, especially in the summer, but mostly all year dissipates the bleach. So you got to put it back in, you know, yeah. What other industries that you prefer to work within? Do you like to, do you bring uh, products to market for instance? We don't bring you know, we're not that specialized in bringing products to market. Although my, I have two colleagues, one marketing expert, he worked his, started his career at Red Bull and, and worked at Muscle Milk and Quest Bar. And my other colleague is an operations expert who has a, Andy, who has a master black belt in Lean and Six Sigma, but we don't bring products to market per se. I enjoy working with e-com businesses okay, because there's a kind of a trick to it of keeping, you know, how do you get people to your website and then what's your PD roadmap so that you can continue to draw people to your roads, your, your roadmap over time and what's your lifetime value of a customer and sort of triangulating those three variables, you can build a solid business with good value. You said PD roadmap. What does PD mean? Product development. Oh, so like okay. what's coming down the road next. Okay. I think it's something fascinating. I worked for a couple of cosmetic companies and one of them, the, the head of PD was telling me, you know, while we're working on next year's color palettes. And I said, where do you get the, where do you get the ideas for the color palettes for next year's? And he said, the car companies. And I said, what? He said, yeah, the car companies are like 10 years out on the colors scheme schematics that they're going to be using both inside and outside. And a lot of the rest of the world follows off that. And I said, I never heard that before. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's still true today or not, but. So as an angel investor, what are you looking for? What do you, what are the, what are the fundamentals you look for in the leadership in the, in the product in the value proposition and the, what, what, what are the, are there benchmarks? Yes. Yes. All that. <laughs> I want to hear this is, the, this is where I know nothing about and I get a little bit, you know, high blood pressure when I start thinking about it too much. Well, it's, it's, they say it's, you know, addressable market. How big is the market? How good is the product? How differentiated is it? How good is the management team? 
to me, it's about the management team and the founder really, you know, you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you can't execute it, it's right. not much. I, I mean, if you were to meet a guy that had a better pizza company, would you invest in it? Cause he was a great leader. Everybody is on every pizza on every corner. There's nothing innovative about it. Especially if you had a, well, that's a, that's kind of a mature category. So right. it, it, even though it's incredibly profitable, cause it's, you know, yeast and tomatoes, right. basically. Right. Um, but you know, can this person pull off what they're saying that they can pull off? Right. How do they answer questions? How, how quick are they on the feet and how much, how much conviction do they have about their business? I've been hanging around the hoop in the financial world for over 40 years. And I've noticed that hiring and keeping great people, focusing on less and having conviction about where you're going, creates a lot of value. Yeah. Right. I look at people, you know, who else is on the team? You know, does it make sense that they're working together? Yes. They might all have great backgrounds and they have, you know, this people worked at Google and this did that and blah, blah, blah. But if, if it doesn't seem like they're going to hang well together, you know, I want them to hang well together. And then I want, you know, I learned this from a friend of mine, Jason Calacanis, who I'm invested in a lot of his funds. He wants somebody focused 24 seven on the business. He wants to know who the person is and they, and he wants to understand that they can pull it off. And I feel the same way, you know, just focus 24 seven. And recently I've run into a couple of opportunities. People have said, Hey, what about this? And th you're thinking of that. And one in particular I met with two weeks ago. And it's two guys who have separate day jobs who have this interesting idea. And I said, so who's going to run this business? Right. And they had no idea. They and both pointed like, to each other. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm like, <laughs> right. Oh, right. Um, right. You, know, you got to be all in. You got to be all in. And, and I think there's an in. element, there's an X factor that I, you know, you know it when you see it and it's that fire in their belly. Yeah. You know, it's hard to define, but I've, I've seen the abstract recently where I, I saw a second generation owner of a business. You know, dad was the founder and the, he, he may not, not have been the best business person on earth, but he had that fire and that drive and that vision and that enthusiasm. And now gener generation two comes in and he's much more cerebral and he's, you know, he's almost, a, he's, he's, you know, almost a clock watcher himself. And you think, how can he motivate and get the best out of his people? If he's saying, oh, it's a uh, four 30, I, you know, I can't talk to you yeah. now, I can go home, you know? And so. You know, you can, and I don't think you can teach the fire in the belly. We had lots of talks about it. I don't think you can teach it. Either you have it or you don't. Interesting question. I, I haven't really thought about that. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, maybe there's a way when they come on an idea, they have fire in the belly for the idea, which they didn't have before in the case of a founder. But, you know, second generation or third generation, those histories replete with examples of the second and third generation not having fire in right. the belly yeah. for reason. So, yeah, I get that. I mean, I had... I had, I had an assignment one time, which was to help change the business if needed, based on the fact that the father and the son were completely different personalities. And now that the son was taking over for the father, should we change anything in the business to make sure that he's going to, you know, have, a, what, what are the things that we need to do to make sure he's going to be successful, even if it's different from the way that the father ran the company. Right. And so, yeah. So what did you do? The, the, the son was very outgoing, kind of a salesman type, and the father really wasn't. And so they had gotten the company to a point, I don't know if you run into this, but we run into this a fair amount where they have no outbound sales strategy. They sort of get to a place in the world based on the fact that the world beats a path to their door because right. they have a mousetrap or a slightly better mousetrap. And then it's like, 
okay, what do we do now? Right. And, and it was pretty uh, straightforward to see that the sun could be that, that person to drive a new sort of create a new outbound sales. Well, the first outbound sales strategy that they right. really had. And so that was the primary change that we made and it worked out well. Although frankly, I mean, I try to go into assignments without any biases because you never know what you're going to find, sure. but I, I do have a slight bias and usually salespeople don't make great CEOs is my, right. Because uh, right. uh, they, they tend to not be very strategic enough to, to get the job done. But you know, there's been examples where that certainly that has worked. Yeah. Yeah. No, interesting. By the way, that's for some reason, that's where I keep on getting brought in is when it, we need a new outbound sales strategy. And then and I get, I, I go in pretty much from the accounting part. I want to know what the margins are. I find that the biggest mistake, I shouldn't say the biggest mistake, but the most consistent mistake I see are companies leadership, not charging the right amount for their widgets or services, et cetera. And most of the time they leave some money on the table. And if I could find, if I could identify that money on the table, then I use that extra margin to pay for better sales talent. I want, I want to, I want to, that, so that's what I've been doing. And then, then I have a comp plan that has a lot of runway. I don't want people to run out of future. Like, okay, I just got here and now this is as high as I can go. So the only way I can make more money is to leave this company. Well, that's the wrong approach. But, but I, but I see that all the time. And my former industry was rife with that. And one way we were able to compete is to, have this philosophy. Uh, yeah, that's smart. Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crises, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID conscious trainers to keep their members active even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www.fitforthecause.org. That's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. Welcome to our new sponsor, Jorgensen HR. Jorgensen HR believes that an employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen HR works to ensure that employers are in compliance with federal, state, and local HR laws and helps assist them with almost everything else HR. Driven by passion and guided by expertise, Jorgensen HR. Please remember to mention Small BizCast when you call 661-600-2070 or visit them online at jorgensenhr.com. If you know of anyone who feels lonely on their way to the top, I can help. Hot Dog Business Growth is for companies of all sizes. For people new to business, we offer the Pay It Forward Roundtable, a monthly half-day panel discussion with your peers, coupled with one-to-one private counseling with me. This is super affordable and the best OJT you'll ever get as you learn to grow your business. For the more seasoned, Hot Dog Business Growth offers counseling for leadership and teams. We offer sales strategies and team synergy, as well as customer service assessments and training. Our decades of business experience is on tap for you and your team. Schedule your no obligation conversation at hotdogbizgrowth.com. We uh, met an ad tech company and their tech, they didn't charge for it. Right. And I'm like, well, you can't be an ad tech company and not charge for your tech. Right. Then you're not an ad tech company. You're an ad company. Right. And advertising. And so it, it co- sort of developed in 
discussion as we found out more and sort of peel back the onion and found out more about the business. And it's like, yeah, we never ended up working with them, but we had, we had great ideas about uh, what we thought they should do. But yeah. What do you say to the, what do you say to the person listening here that has a company, they're trying to get it to a place where they're thinking at it, thinking of it from the eyes of the person who's going to buy it. How do you get them to shake the sheets or how do you, what do you want them to look at first to move down that process? You know, I think that the, what I would do is to write down all the things that they hold dear and are the givens in their business about, you know, how it runs and where they, who their customers are and what a good customer is. And just think about and put on paper, what are the things that they assume the foundation is built on and then challenge them. Right. I mean, so I went through that exercise recently and, and the client had no idea who the avatar was. And they were just guessing. I could tell they were guessing. And so we did challenge it. And, and I think that's, do you think that's common? I don't, I don't I do that exercise as often as I probably should, but. I, but. Think, I think it is common. I mean, our, 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 when we meet with the management team and individually and the owners individually, that's what we try to pick off. And then we try to triangulate what we learn from everybody to see who's, mm-hmm. who's leading us on and who's telling us the truth. Usually everybody tells the truth because the time we're hired, everybody wants to be helpful. Right. And making it better. <laughs> Excuse me. And so, yeah, I think that happens a lot. In fact, you know, part and parcel to the no up on sales strategy is it's very rare that we find they have a definition of what a, cust- a good customer is. It's right. like a customer is a good customer. And one of my, <laughs> one of my rules that I developed over the last 40 years is because I've seen it so much is all revenue is not created equal. And every company has revenue that they shouldn't have. And so explain that we drilled down that I, I saw that in your notes a little bit that you mentioned that when we, and, and I think what you're saying is that some revenue takes away the bandwidth to create better revenue elsewhere is how I interpret that. But I could be way off. I may not really understand what you're saying. It's, it's some of that. It's also relates to value. And that is, let me use an example. We work for a e-com apparel company. And owned the brand for eight or 10 years, grew it from nothing, never raised any capital, real solid found of foundation, good management team. They were in a small town in the middle, you know, in, in, and it's like they had a really good management team. And we noticed that 20% of the revenue company was other e-tailers, 66, two thirds was e-tailer, their own website. And 20% was other e-tailers. So does that mean they were doing arbitrage? The other e-tailers were buying their products and then reselling yeah. it? Yeah. And we said, why are you giving them a 50% discount to compete online for the same person you're trying to find? Right. And the answer was, we've always done it that way. And, you know, mm-hmm. no disrespect to them, they were open enough to a change. But every time we hear that, we love it because we know there's a reason we can help. We can really be helped. Right. So we did the, we did the analysis and she said, if we get rid of that, if we shrink, and get rid of the worst revenue in the company, which is not only that, but about 10% was other, was brick and mortar. If we get rid of that and the 50% discount that typically comes with a brand and a, and a, and a retailer, whether it's e-commerce or brick and mortar, and we do it all direct to consumer, they'll have a lot of benefits. We'll have higher margins. We'll control from beginning to end the customer experience. Right. And when you talk to the members of this, when you talk to the management team, their DNA was really e-com, not 
not brick and mortar, even though they had started out with both 10 years before, within eight years, whatever it was when they started. So we said, let's get rid of the bad revenue. Let's shrink. Yeah, less is more. And build, and build it back with the best revenue because I think we can increase the value of the company pretty well, pretty dramatically. And we did. Gotcha. And we, with that, we said, here's the milestones of things that we need to accomplish in order to affect that. Do, 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 you know, there were like 10 or 12 things. Right. It took a year, but we more than doubled the value of the business by affecting that change because, right. because all, and they thought about it, but they, they didn't, they, they, they really didn't have the time to analyze it. And then just a part of what I think gets to the heart of what we do, Joel, is we said, okay, here's the payoff in terms of value. I think we can double the value of the business and the execution risk is manageable. So why wouldn't you do this? Right. If the execution risk was super high and the payoff was low, you wouldn't do that. Right. Sure. The payoff is pretty good and the execution risk is, is manageable, you know, and then I say, well, I think that whoever we sell to is going to do this day one. So why don't we do it? And they looked at the, the milestones and everybody's like, yeah, we can do this. This is, this is not a problem. What, so what kind of, what kind of margins were they working on when they were selling at 50% off versus when they were selling it, you know, hundred percent of what retail with the market would bear? I don't know. I remember exactly, but the EBITDA margins were pretty good, but they increased by 50 or 60% because you had a third of revenue coming back with the full margin and you had less cost on the, even when you improved or uh, included like tripling social media budget, there was, you know, give backs that retailers demanded that right. were needed. The EBITDA margins improved quite materially. I was, I was going to guess when, when she told me that, that they probably only had to increase their revenue 20, 25% in order to make up the lost volume, which is not a hard, which is not a hard, you know, bump to pick up given, especially the way you just described tripling the the marketing for social media. So, yeah, so that's, that's what I mean by all revenue is not right. creative. Another right. example, my former colleague and I worked on a client that was vocational school and for-profit and owned by two guys who were in the vocation and started a school. And every quarter they would add new classes. Because mm -hmm. if I recall correctly, one of them was like the new class guy and and, you know, it's kind of good to keep things fresh, et cetera. And, you know, we did the analysis and said, let's make an agreement very early on. Let's have the overall uh, efficiency of the utilization of the classrooms at a certain point before we add new classes, because the best revenue is the last 10 seats in a class where you have no more additional, no more additional costs, no more rent, right, right. teaching salary, no more development costs to get a course and curriculum together, et cetera. So that transformed the profitability of the business because they, they couldn't add, I forget what the numbers were, which, what was the utilization, but beyond a certain point, they could add new classes, but until we got to that point, they couldn't and profitability went up. That's so interesting. We got rid the, the worst, the worst revenue were the first 10 seats. Of sure. <laughs> That's like an airline, you know, that, yeah, yeah. you know, that seat in the, in the classroom and in the airline, once the class is held or the flight goes, it's gone and you can't sure. get it. Sure. That's kind of what I, we mean by all revenues not created equal. Ah, that's interesting. It's, I think you can do a whole podcast on that. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes shrinking is the right answer. Right. Because in order to get to a better value outcome. And so going back to the e-commerce company, I think that's two things that we help with is whatever we talk about, it's always in terms of value. What, what's a, how's a buyer going to look at this and what their react, what's their reaction going to be and what's the execution risk of it? And if it, like you and I were saying a minute ago, if the execution risk is high and the payoff is low, you don't do it. It doesn't make sense. If the execution risk is acceptable, manageable, and the payoff is pretty good, why wouldn't you do that? Right. That's why it's not just revenue and growth, it's the type of revenue growth. So it's, it's, it's related to value and risk too. And and by, by shifting your focus from a less profitable to a more profitable model, you also protect your sustainable growth curve as well. So you, you can grow your business without needing additional cash over a longer period of time. So that gives you a lot more value. Absolutely. Yeah. Protect what you already have. Right. By, and, and sometimes it's hard for people to sort of follow the logic of protecting it by shrinking. Right. Because everyone wants to grow. Right. But, you know, telling your neighbor or the person at the country club that you've got a hundred million dollar company in revenue isn't as the same as that you're worth a hundred million dollars. <laughs> Whatever. Don't I know it. <laughs> By the way, I don't belong to any country club, so I'm just saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So what are your hobbies? Given, as um, soon as I get healthy again with from my knee replacement surgery, I, I love biking. I love being outdoors. Uh-huh. I'm Irish, so my fair skin doesn't work so well in the California. I don't go to the beach, but I love being outdoors. Sure. Uh, I love, I, I want to get back to golf. I had to give it up because of my knees. I had to give up hiking. I mean, I'm okay on flat surfaces, but I had to give up that. And I wasn't able to start pickleball, which a lot of my friends out here are doing. So right. that's part of what I wanted to do my knees to get ready for the next phase of my life and be able to get back to those things. Yeah. That's so, cool. so you had knee replacement nine weeks ago. Nine right. weeks ago on the left and maybe a month from now on the right. So mm-hmm. that's thinking. And then I love to travel the last four, last, I don't know, five, six, well, COVID excluded, but the last six, seven years, I've been traveling a lot more. And the one thing we've learned through COVID was that we don't need to be a person all the time that, you know, the medium we're doing now, Zoom and di- digital works pretty well. Sure. Not the thing, but it works pretty well. So, you know, I spent time in Hawaii during, during lockdown. Nobody cared. Right. Now, do you, do you, when you go on vacation, do you find yourself evaluating the businesses that you're patronizing while you're traveling? Yeah, I do. I do too. And sometimes I start up a conversation and sometimes I don't. It just sort right. of the circumstances. Right. Uh, yeah, especially, yeah, I do. Restaurants, yeah. you know, I, I love to eat. So I love to, love to kind of piddle around with you know, the restaurants and how they're doing and everything. Yeah. And I'm also, you know, genuinely want people to succeed at coming yeah. out. I want real restaurants to be there. I want to go to my right. restaurants that I like. And I want, I want that vibrant economy that everybody appreciates. So. I'm always asking like Uber drivers, how's your business doing? You know, right. I went to an investor conference up in Napa for angel investing and my, my, I flew into Oakland and then took a car over. My car going back was an ex Google manager who got laid off in the big thing. And he's now driving his 850 or whatever that eight series BMW as a, as a Uber driver now. Right. And the guy going over also got laid off. He had a big SUV because sometimes when you do Uber and you do black car, you get an SUV. I don't know if you've tried that, but it actually works sometimes. So yeah, 
So he got laid off somewhere and he was driving as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, we're all grateful, but the world is in flux. So I'm going to give a plug to a TV show I watched where I thought it was one of the best depictions of just how difficult it is to run a business. In this case, it was a restaurant. The, the show is called The Bear. And it's about a family business. And, how, and, and, and over two seasons, it evolves from being basically a sandwich shop in Chicago to, you know, a Michelin quality restaurant. And it's so, it's so intense sometimes. I was watching with my wife. I was saying, this is the, the best depiction of fiction that I've ever seen that, that shows you what it's like from an emotional and a frustration, you know, all the all the all the highs and lows of running a business, it was fascinating to me how they were able to capture it so oh. well. And I talked to a couple of restaurateurs to ask them if they've seen it to see how it fits their lives, and they were saying it's you know it's such a great model. I really encourage anybody who's interested in going in the restaurant business. If you, I'll tell you something, I would never go in the restaurant business after seeing what it's like with these people. It's scripted. It's scripted, Joel. Excuse me. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It's not a reality it's, show. It's a, it's not a like the profit show or the whatever. No, it's not like that. It's it's a fiction. It's a fiction, right. but it's very well done. It's on Hulu. It's called The Bear. Okay, I'll yeah, I'll check it out. I recently cut cable. Finally, I got I got out of Direct TV after twenty, you know, long years. Right. You can't swear on this, right? So I was going to swear. Sure. You can. All right. Well, twenty freaking years, and uh, maybe twenty five. I don't know. And I'm just, I'm on YouTube TV, which I love, and which yeah. has the NFL package, which I love, but it also has a lot of live programming and then uh, the, the, the streaming channels. So I've seen the advertisements for right. it, but I don't know what it was about. So I'm going to check it out. So I'm really enjoying this podcast episode because we're just talking. Yeah, It's just a natural conversation. I, you're so interesting. You like the things I like and you see the things I see and you probably do them. You probably see them better than I see them. And it's really interesting. So. I'm curious what you, what, you know, for your practice, what you see, what's the future hold for you? What's, what's next in your career? Wow. Well, I love what I do. Yeah. I didn't love being an investment banker. I, I didn't know I didn't love it until I got to do this. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I, I enjoyed it because I did it for 20 years and I was good at it, except at the end, because I don't think my heart was in it, but. But I didn't know that I didn't love it until I got to this because I absolutely love this, both the, the angel investing and the consulting. And, you know, I have a, I have an amazing, grateful life. Every day, my, it's full of consulting, investing, investing, you know, it's like different proportions depending on, you know, networking that you and I do, prospecting, staying in touch with companies that I invested in, investing in new ones, and then of course doing client work. So. I've had a full life and I'm very, very, yeah, I'm very grateful. Yeah. No, you, you wear it well too. By the way, I love the consulting too. I really loved when I owned my company. I used to love the pride I felt when I'd walk in the door and I'd see the place buzzing along and thinking, I don't, you know, look at, look at these people. They're proud of the work they're doing and we're doing good work and the customers love us and everything's good. And I loved it. I loved it, but I didn't know how much I'd love being, yeah, I love this so much more. I think it's, for what you said earlier, you want to see people succeed. I always joke and say it's a little bit like the business equivalent of being a grandparent. You get to go in and, you know, fill them full of sugar and ideas and then, <laughs> and they, and go back and let them do all the hard work. But, no. but there is something very rewarding about seeing one of your clients go from, I had a client that went from 600000 a month to $900,000 a month in about 16 months, 17 months. 
And, you know, my job was to put myself out of a job. And when we left, I walked out feeling like this is, this is awesome. I don't, you know, I don't have to bear the burden of any of this, but I get to see them succeed. And I was so proud. It's, it's very fulfilling. I guess yeah. that's the difference. Banking was interesting, but it wasn't as fulfilling as this because you're really helping. By the time people hire us, they, they need your help. And, right. And, you know, that being able to help them is very fulfilling. What did you learn as a business owner that's helped you now? Um, first of all, one of the things that I want to always say when I talk about my success in business was that it was very, very hard. And most of the years I was not successful. So two things. One is there's no substitute for time. You know, you can have the best ideas and, but you got, it takes time to build your, your clients, your reputation, your style, your, it just takes time to build it all. And so very, very few people can buy their way into success without putting the time in. The second thing is, and this one was the hardest one for me to learn, was to empower your employees and hire people smarter than you. And it took me a long time to realize that I didn't actually have a name on my door, but the name on my door didn't say the smartest guy in the room. It said my name. And just because I owned it didn't mean I know do better than other people. And to take a breath and let people solve their own problems. And oftentimes, because they were more in the weeds than I was, they had better solutions than I would have come up with anyway. And so once you empower them and you realize that they're going to make mistakes, but they're, if, 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 if we handle it well, they'll make mistakes that have value to them because they'll learn right. and teach others from it. And then you have to let the mistakes happen without getting too crazy. Now, I, when I say things like that, I always think of you know, a handful of employees that were of mine when I was young in my career that I, you know, that I didn't handle it well. And I'm sure they're rolling their eyes going, that guy's full of it. And, I, and, and so I have to own the fact that it took me a long time to evolve into the person I wanted to be when things were going wrong. It took me a long time to get there. So it's hard. It's hard. And it takes self, self-awareness and a desire to be better. At least it did for me. Yeah. And, uh, so I think that that answers your question probably. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're a better consultant for having had that experience. But, I would you know, hope so. Yeah. Thank you know, you. Make payroll on a day when, you know, it was hard and all the rest of it. But yeah. uh, what more, more, even more so probably the cultural part of managing people. I hear from a lot of people, you know, if it wasn't for managing people, I'd really like doing this. You know, it's, I, I've heard that my whole career. And the reality is, you know, you can't build a business without having people. Know. Unless so it's, a, it's such a backwards way of looking at it. And it's, it's, I, I never, I've always understood why people get frustrated. I've been frustrated. God knows I've been frustrated by my own staff and team members, excuse me, over the years, but without them, I'd be nowhere. Right. So you have to respect the fact that they have, that's part of the, of the philosophy. It's part of the process. Like you said, when I say hire and keep great people, I mean, people that are smarter than you, like you said, and right. you're going to go far. Your, your probability of success goes up by the ability for you to hire and keep great people. Right. Absolutely. Well, Murph, any closing words? I've enjoyed this. I've, I've done a few, few podcasts over the years and you know, you're, I love just kind of talking and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. Um, thank you for your good questions and you know, we should do more of this somehow. I don't know exactly what, but you, you, you've got a great vibe. So thank you very wow. much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Murr. Very good. Hey, another good episode of Small BizCast in the can. Hey, listeners, you do make a difference. You make a difference when you share the episodes on Facebook or other social media. You make a difference when you give us reviews wherever you get your podcast. 
And you make a difference when you email me your suggestions and ideas, comments, and notes to jv at jovopro.com. You also make a difference when you support our sponsors. And I really encourage everybody to do so. Jorgensen HR, Hot Dog Business Growth, and SoCal Labrador Retriever Rescue, all of which can be found on the show notes. Thanks a million. Until next time, hot dog, it's a wonderful life.